Good morning. Greetings in the Master's name. It's good to be together. I don't know. Somewhere in the mid-late 50s must be a time of transition of perspective. Uh, shared a lot of perspective with Brother Allen as he shared this morning. Remind me of some conversations we've had at our house recently. What's really important in life? It all comes together. It's interesting. Last This past week I had a number of uh, interactions back and forth with someone who's interested in the floor plan of my mother's, what was my mother's home, because they want to downsize. They want to retire where they have no more than what they just have to have. And uh, later, uh, I guess yesterday, I received fairly long communication from somebody that as they're growing older, they have a burden that the truth is transmitted to the next generation, and people have conviction. And, you know, as we grow older, those things is what's important. It, uh, I agree with Alan. I, sometimes I drive down the road and see people building these huge houses, and I've had enough experience with helping clean recently in our Airbnb that uh, they have my sympathy. <laughs> I don't think that's a lot of fun, clean this huge house that no one would live in anyway. So, Anyway, this morning's lesson, our Sunday school lesson, was about contentment, and uh, so our lesson was in favor of contentment, but this message the Lord has laid on my heart this morning is... Uh, is against complacency. So what's the difference? I see contentment as giving your heart and your life completely to the Lord and being content in what He brings into your life as you serve Him. Complacency is taking for granted the things that we have and not using them in the way that we should to build the kingdom or to... I invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Peter, the third chapter. That will be our text this morning, the third chapter of 1 Peter. And this message this morning continues to grow out of my, the messages seem to continue to grow out of my personal life experience and how God is leading and speaking into my life uh, as, as I go through this season or, or period of life. And I shared with this just a bit in the opening at our communion service about God has impressed on my heart recently how much God and Christ are still doing for our salvation. It's easy for us to sometimes look at the work of Christ on the cross and His, his statement, it is finished, and Father, into to thy hands I commit my spirit. And we think, well, it's all done. It's all taken care of. But as I consider more and, and think about what Christ is really doing, he is still investing, God is still investing so deeply in our salvation experience, doing so much for us. So what then is our response back to God and in response to what He has done for us, and hopefully we can understand better from the Scripture this morning, what is expected of us as we walk with God? So Second Peter chapter 3, this second I write unto you, did I say First Peter? I'm sorry. Second Peter. <laughs> second Peter chapter 3. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. So what's he saying here? Peter is saying here, dear believers, and, and that's something I wanted to, to make uh, very evident here at the beginning. Peter is writing to believers right? And he's saying, I'm writing you a second letter, and just like the first letter, the purpose was to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. 
What's he mean here by stir up? Stir up means to arouse, to awaken fully. In pure minds, it's kind of interesting, I didn't study this before, a pure mind refers to something that has been tested in bright sunlight and proven to be genuine. So he's saying, to you people, I'm trying to arouse you, I'm trying to stir you up and keep you going in your Christian walk, keep you inspired, keep you challenged, keep you fit, and that's what he's calling for us here. That you may be mindful of the works which were the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the command of us, the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So he's saying, I want to remind you of what the, the words spoken by the, the prophets of the Old Testament, and not only that, past truth, but present truth as well, which is being confirmed by the work of, of Peter and the other apostles as well. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking under, after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? Since our, for since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And he's saying, as time progresses, there are going to be people that, that stand up in derision, toward, derision towards God. They're going to be scoffers, and they're going to, they're going to doubt God's existence. And they're going to say, where is God? Where is this God that you teach about? And where is this promise of the second coming that you're preaching about all the time? For, for ever since the fathers, ever since the old-timers fell asleep or died, things continue on just as they were from the beginning. One generation comes and goes and another. And where is this God that you talk about in the universe? They're doubting his existence. They're doubting his sovereignty, his omniscient presence, and the sustaining the universe. Where is this God that you're talking about? And they say this, whereby the world that was then being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. He's saying this world here that, and he's describing the skeptics, and he's saying they're, they're doubting this even happened. And they're, they're willfully choosing to ignore the facts. I believe even back then, there were those who were disputing the authenticity of the theory, or not the theory, the fact of the flood. It would appear here that they were already disputing the fact that there was a worldwide flood. But he's saying the world that was before it was created, and then later, back in verse 5, it talks about Back in old times, there was the earth, and we know that God separated the dry land from the water. And then later, the world that was, that was created then, everything, every living thing on it perished except Noah and what he had with him in the ark. And Colossians 1 reminds us that Christ was there. This was not just some historical theory that someone came up with. It was a fact. It happened. It truly happened. In Colossians 1, in verses 12 and following, we see that. <clears throat> Giving thanks unto God, which hath made us partakers of the inheritance of the saints of light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him all things were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. 
And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say, whether they be things of the earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Now this is the writing of Paul, but it, it goes hand in hand with what we're looking at here in Peter. He's saying, Christ has preeminence. Christ was there in creation, and all things were created by him and for him. All things are sustained by him, and also it's through God's plan, the shedding of Christ's blood, that we have salvation. And Peter is saying, I'm stirring up your pure minds by way of remembrance not to lose faith in God, not to be drawn away by the scoffers who are saying, where is this God that you preach about? Now verse 6. It's saying that they are willingly ignorant of the facts. They're willingly choosing to ignore the evidence of God's first universal judgment of sin, and thereby they're questioning or scoffing at the idea of their preaching that there will be another universal judgment of sin coming, this time by fire and not by water. Verse 7, But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved into fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. So, by the same word, the second judgment will come. Just as God spoke the word to Noah and said there's going to be a flood, there will be another judgment coming, this time by fire. And he said, but believers, be not ignorant of this one thing. Remember, God is not encompassed by time. God is from eternity past to eternity future. Time has no, no hold on God. It has no limit upon God. And that's hard for us to understand. Everything we know is in the process of being created or, or built or diminishing or something. Everything is affected by time. Our lives are affected by time. As we've already learned this morning, our perspectives change as time goes on on what's important in our lives. Not so with God. God is eternal, unchanging, forever settled in the heavens. God and His Word. He does not change. So don't be ignorant. Don't, don't miss this fact that a day and a thousand years is one and the same in the sight of God. He's not slack concerning His promise, verse 9. But as some men count slackness, but as long-suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that's our text verse this morning. God is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness or slowness, but He continues to patiently work in His plan for us, for our salvation, for the salvation of all the souls in the world, because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And that is a fact that should give us a foundation upon which to build our lives 
and our perspective. Everything's going to melt with fervent heat. God is restraining the judgment that is to come. He's holding it back, not because he's slow, but because he's compassionate. And he's waiting because he wants more to come into the kingdom. He doesn't want anyone to perish. I see things here that it's, he's saying things are not out of God's control. God is, in, in essence, he's exhibiting incomprehensible control, control that we can't comprehend and understand. We look around at all the wickedness in the world and say, how can it go on? But God is exhibiting incomprehensible control and not unleashing the judgment upon sin and debauchery that's so prevalent in our world today and has been throughout generations. That's why the sun still rises in the east every morning. I thought about that as I studied. God's mercies are new every morning. Every time we see a sunrise, we should be reminded that here's another day that God has made, another opportunity for us to serve and for those who do not know him to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior and to come into the kingdom and to be translated from the darkness of Satan to the kingdom of light in Jesus Christ, his dear Son. God has invested the very best that heaven has to offer. Have you thought about that for our salvation? He, just didn't, he didn't just send some angel or some heavenly being here to earth to work out a plan of salvation. He sent his son, the very best he had, Jesus Christ. He gives us of himself. He gives us of his Holy Spirit to, to walk with us and to direct our lives. God has invested the best that heaven has to offer for our salvation. And he's restraining his judgment to give opportunity for repentance. But it won't always be that way, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, and the heavens shall pass away with great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. He said this is what is coming. And he said it's going to come as a thief in the night. It's going to show up before anyone can do anything about it. Another scripture says in the twinkling of an eye, how long does it take for an eye to twinkle? And it says, the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. One translation says, it will, it will pass away with a thunderous boom. Another translation says, they will pass away with a great roar. And can you imagine the, the terror in the hearts of those who aren't right with God when that takes place? Less than the time it takes to snap your fingers, it's going to be all over. Jesus is going to appear in the twinkling of an eye. It says, The heavens shall pass away with that thunderous noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the earth also and the works therein shall be burned up. Sounds like catastrophic global warming. In a fraction of a second, this whole universe melts. It's going. Are we living in the light of that reality? Is that what drives our lives? Is that what we think about when we see our unsaved friends, neighbors, and relatives and we interact with them? That the next twinkling of an eye might be too late to get right with God. And the next verse challenges us in that. How then shall we live, it says, 
seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. When something dissolves, it's going. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives, another translation states. Is that how we're living? In the reality of the truth of the Word of God that we've known from childhood, most of us. How then shall we live? Nevertheless, we. What comes next? It says, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. Description of this new heaven and new earth that Peter writes about. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea, no more turbulence. And I, John, saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne saith, said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said unto me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is the thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. <clears throat> and he that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Beautiful words of comfort and inspiration to the child of God. Looking forward to that. Let's read one more verse. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. What a contrast. As I studied this, I had a new thought. There's no greater contrast than the contrast between heaven and hell. There's, there's just nothing else that we can compare to that contrast. And that's even in our finite minds. And while we read about the difference, I believe it is impossible for us to even comprehend the reality of either, heaven or hell. I believe heaven will be so much better than we can comprehend or, or even imagine. And I think hell will be so much worse than we can comprehend or imagine. A place of outer darkness a place of sulfur and brimstone, horrible smell, I believe. A bottomless pit where people will fall for eternity, just falling, falling, falling. And then indescribable pain that never ends. Versus being around the throne of God in Christ 
in bliss and worship. I don't believe we can comprehend the difference. Only God and Jesus know the difference. Now let's consider together God's fervent investment in providing opportunity for us to avoid that darkness and to live in His light. Let's consider God's fervent investment. Oh, the title this morning is God's Passion for Our Salvation. God's Passion for Our Salvation. John 17, 5. We're going way back now, even before creation. And Jesus is praying to His Father, and, he's, and He takes us back to that setting. And now, O Father, glorify Thou me in Thine own self with the glory which I had with Thee before the world was. Before the world was. Jesus said, Father, I was with You, and I was in Your glorious presence, and I shared Your glory way back there before creation. Father, I will that they also whom Thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which Thou hast given me, for Thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. And this is what's been on my mind the last month or so. Way back before the foundation of the earth, way back before creation, God had a son that He loved. And notice what else went on back there. 1 Peter 1.18 says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So that is how we're redeemed. But when did that plan come into being? Ephesians 1.3 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So, passages that we've looked at, we conclude that God had the plan of salvation fully implemented in his mind before the creation of the earth. God knew that He would create human beings to have a relationship with Him. God knew that we would choose to sin. God knew that we would need a way back into relationship with Him. And before He even set the, the, the week of creation in, in, in motion, He had a plan of salvation that I believe Jesus had agreed to way back before the foundation of the earth was laid, so to speak, according to the Bible. Think about God's investment in your salvation. He cared that much. Verse 4 of Ephesians 1 says, He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him. Way back before creation, God chose you and me and everyone else who chooses to be part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ to be holy without blame before Him and in Him. The all-knowing God invested in your salvation before He created the earth and the sun and the moon and the stars and all that. God's passion for our salvation. What else did He do? 
having predestinated us into the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. That was God's pleasure. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. is God's purpose. It's God's pleasure to have you and me and everyone else who will come to him through Christ as his children. And he has promised to pour into our lives all things that pertain to life and godliness and give us what we need if we'll receive it to walk with him in joy and victory. And God set the details of this whole plan in place before creation. And then after creation, we have Adam and Eve, and we have sin. And they attempted to cover their sin with fig leaves, and God said, no. There needs to be shedding of blood, so God went and took the skins of animals and gave them clothing to cover their nakedness as a type of the fact it's going to take the shedding of blood to cover our sins. And for the next 4,000 years, thousands of animals were slain year after year after year after year. And the blood flowed, thousands of gallons of blood flowed over those altars and, and around the places of worship. And then God also reached into Abraham's life, Abram's life, and he called out a people group, and he chose them to be his people. And he gave them a moral code in the Ten Commandments. And following that then, as time went on, he gave them the law in greater and greater revelation of his directives for morality and life, which they and we could never keep. Yes, the law showed us God's desire and God's design for the way he wanted us to live. But the law also showed us how deficient we are in and of ourselves to measure up. We'll never do it. We can't do it. And there needed to be a sacrifice that would come not only to cover sins, as those 4,000 years of sacrifices did, but there needed to be a sacrifice to come that would take away that sin for the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints as well. And there was only one sacrifice that could meet that need, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And in the fullness of time, the Scripture says, in the fullness of time, when the time was right, God sent His Son into the world through the virgin birth as an innocent babe in Bethlehem, and we know the story. Jesus grew to manhood. Jesus walked and talked and taught and ministered and healed and met needs. He chose 12 disciples, and He prepared them to continue on after his ascension, to continue and reach out and to serve others. He then suffered. He died. He rose again. He ascended, and he sent his spirit. But he isn't done. Hebrews 7.24 says this, But this man Jesus, because he continueth ever eternal, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Not like the priest in the Old Testament that would come and they would serve from 
a certain time period until they reached a certain age and they'd be replaced. And another priest, another priest, another priest. And just like the Old Testament sacrifices, it was, it was incomplete. But Jesus completed it. He continueth forever an eternal priesthood. Wherefore, he's able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. He isn't just covering our sin. He's taking it away. He's saving us to the uttermost. He's saving us completely as we're in him. Seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Is Jesus busy right now? Can you imagine interceding for all the believers in the whole world? Saying, Father, so-and-so is having a temptation. Strengthen him through the Spirit. He's there. It says, he ever liveth, 24-7, 365. Yeah, there's no time in heaven, but to us it is. And that's just been impressed on my mind so hard in the past several months over the Easter season, how hard Jesus is still working, so to speak, for us. And I wonder if, and I said this before, I wonder if one of the reasons Jesus is looking so forward to bringing his bride into his presence in heaven is he will finally be able to rest from his labor, so to speak, and just receive worship. Maybe I'm reading things in that's not there, but I'm trying to think this thing through. Yes, heaven's a place of worship. But Jesus and God are so invested in the salvation of their people and wooing those who have not received salvation, yet they're busy. And I read in the book of Revelation after everything comes together where there's just a place of gathering around a throne and worshiping. And how much Jesus deserves that worship. When we get there and we know that it's nothing we have done, it's it's. He did it for us, and the least we can do is give him everything we have while we're here. The least we can do, and it's nothing in comparison. Why is Jesus doing that? It says he ever liveth to make intercession. Jesus also ever liveth to live in obedience to his Father's will. Nevertheless, not my will, he said in the garden, but thine be done. Jesus, in complete obedience to his Father's will, in complete obedience to the plan of salvation that God set in place way before, eons before creation, in complete obedience, he's there giving everything for our salvation. What are we giving back to him? What are we giving back to him? Let's go back to 2 Peter, the third chapter, again. Verse 14, we stopped at verse 13. We'll drop in at verse 14. We're thinking about what are we doing in response to that. Wherefore, beloved, seeing ye look for such things, the new heaven, new earth, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Is that the description of the lives that we're pursuing in Christ Jesus? The lives we're pursuing in Christ Jesus. Peace spotless, blameless, diligent, 
giving it all we have for him in and through his power. Are we living that out? Verse 17, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. What's he referring to in verse 17? He's referring back, I believe, to the first verses here in chapter 3 where he's talking about those scoffers who are saying, where is God? We wonder if this whole thing's even true anymore. He's saying, be careful. Be careful that you, you don't get lulled into complacency and forget the reality of these facts. Beware of complacency. Have we laid everything on the altar for Jesus Christ? Have we? Turn with your Bibles to Luke 14. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them. So Jesus, Jesus the miracle worker, Jesus the healer, Jesus the one who fed the 5,000, the Jesus who was meeting needs and drawing crowds, and a great multitude was coming after him, and Jesus turned to them and noticed what he said. He said, If any man will come after me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Cannot be. For which of you intending to build a tire setteth not down first and counteth the cost whether he hath sufficient to finish it, lest happily, happily after he hath laid the foundation is not able to finish it, and all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, setteth not down first, and consulteth whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand? Or else yet wise, yet a great way away off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. Verse 33. So likewise, whosoever he be of you, that forsaketh not all that he hath, cannot be my disciple. Do we believe that? Have we laid everything on the altar for Christ as he laid himself on the altar of the cross for us? Would anything less than that even be a comprehensible exchange? He left the glories of heaven, received the worst that humanity can throw at you, for our salvation. How should that affect our lives? I'm in the process of studying a book now, and uh, I read this in it this morning to share a bit with you. And this is not written from an Anabaptist man. God has called us to separate ourselves from the world. Saints down through the ages have understood the necessity of turning their backs on the world and its immoral value system. And if they experience, if they were to experience the vibrant walk with God, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Moses, the prophets, John the Baptist, and the apostles all lived this way, not to mention the majority of Christians down through the ages. What Jesus has always said, what Jesus said has always been true. No man can serve two masters, or either he will love the one and hate the other. He will hold to the one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Those who endeavor to escape the pollutants of this world will only be able to do so if they sever themselves from its corrupting influences. But in America, the majority of Christians have glossed over this inescapable and essential truth. 
They want to have both. They want to have and by large have created a culture and a gospel allows them to live for passing pleasures of Egypt and still claim heaven as their eternal home. A.W. Tozer explained it this way. Men think of the world not as a battleground, but as a playground. It's a battleground. We are not here to fight. We are here to frolic. We are not in a foreign land. We're at home, and we're, getting, we're not getting ready to live. We're already living, and the best we can do, we're already living. And the best we can do to rid ourselves of inhibitions and our frustrations is to live this life in full. How can we ever hope to cleanse our minds from the filth of our past if we continue to wallow in the world's sensuous way of thinking? As saints, we are called to be strangers and pilgrims on the earth. We are to seek things above. Our citizenship is in heaven, for which we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. True conversion results in a translation from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. When a man is saved, he is saved out of the dominion of darkness into the dominion of light. What fellowship hath light with darkness? Paul told the Ephesians, You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Our distinction in the world is supposed to be that we are light, which is frequently contrasted in the Bible to the world of darkness. So why then does a lifestyle of the average American Christian offer little, if any, distinction from the lifestyle of the rest of the American population? If one is light and the other darkness, why is it nearly impossible to tell them apart? The answer is the phenomenon which has become the hallmark of American Christian movement. They are Americans first and Christians second. American Christians have created a church subculture, even a gospel that suits their entertainment-driven, prosperity-laden lifestyles, and in so doing, have introduced their own sanctified brand of American dream. How many Christians you know that live just as much for the weekend as the rest of their unsaved co-workers? How many are just as obsessed over sports teams, just as covetous of worldly fashion, and just as much in debt while endeavoring to fill their lives with all these same toys? The heart of the person who has grown up in this kind of environment is fertile ground for sin. Consider what the Lord says when he revealed the root of Sodom's sins. Behold, this is the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundance of food, and careless ease. And she did not help the poor and needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore I removed them when I saw it. Ezekiel 16, 49. This passage exposes the indulgent lifestyle that precipitated the gross immorality which became the hallmark of Sodom and Gomorrah. Their prosperity allowed them to pursue comfort and pleasure as an overriding concern, overriding the concerns of life. Rather than meeting the needs of the poor, they lived for themselves, and eventually sexual sins overran their culture. Does this sound familiar with where we're living today? What are we doing with the abundance that we have? Are we living in the light of the realities we've just looked at in the Word of God? That everything we have here is going to turn into one big glob of melted matter. And that's all that's going to be left. Then the new heaven and the new earth will come. And we won't get into that. We may not agree exactly with how it's going to happen. But there'll be a new heaven and a new earth coming down, the Scripture says, to replace this old one. And we're not sure exactly how that is. But everything we know now will be melted and going. The last time I preached here, I had a children's meeting on talents and how people use those. Well, the next day, I, I like to check and see what the sermons are in the other southeastern churches, and uh, I seen that while I was 
talking to the children about talents. Brother Jonathan Burkholder preached a whole message on talents at Bethany. So I listened to it, and I'd encourage you to listen to it. It was a very good message. He took it a little different direction, and I found it very challenging. He focused on how much effort the first two men, the one with five talents and the one with two talents, he focused on how much effort he perceived that those two men may have had to invest in their life to double their talents. And his question for us to consider is this, is that the way we're pursuing the things of God in our lives? And his burden was, when this generation passes away, or no, his, his burden was different, as the generation of older Christians that we've looked to for, for spiritual guidance are passing away, are we investing in God and allowing God to invest in us in such a way that we can pick up the mantle and carry it for the next generation? Are we doing that? And in reality, in the next 12 to 15 years, most of the leaders that you know now in our churches are going to be replaced. Are you investing and allowing God to invest in you to pick up the mantle and carry it for the next generation? Is my generation investing the way the generation that's now passing on invested? It's interesting, I had a long text message yesterday from somebody in another state, and that was the burden they were wrestling with, that are people into the Word of God, and are they staying separate from the influences of society around us in such a way that we're going to carry the mantle of faith to the next generation and the next? Are we sold out? Do we have everything on the altar that God can work in our lives in that way? Hebrews 2 says this, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Which at first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to His will. The book of Hebrews is a very challenging book. I remember Brother Josh preached from it um, here at our revival meetings. The book of Hebrews is a very challenging uh, book. It, it has at least, forget it, it's three or five warnings about not letting things slip. And we looked at it here. Don't let the Word of God and the things in the Word of God that we've been taught slip. And it's the idea of just letting them slowly get away, like uh, water dripping out of a tank until it's slowly going. So slow you don't hardly even notice it's happening. He says, we ought to give the more earnest heed that doesn't happen in our lives. And how shall we escape if we neglect to invest everything in the salvation God has revealed and offered and given to us. How shall we escape? Romans 12 and verse 18, I mean, excuse me, Hebrews 12 and verse 18 now says this, For we are not come in a mountain which, cannot, which might be touched that burneth with fire, nor to blackness or darkness or tempest, and the sound of the trumpet and the voice of words which the voice they heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more. 
For they could not endure that which is commanded, for so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. So terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly quake, fear and quake. But ye are coming to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See, that ye refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escape not which refused him who spake on earth, how much more shall we, shall we not escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven? Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. See, the next time God speaks, all heaven and earth is going to shake with that roar and that melting and that thunderous end to what's coming. And he's saying, how shall we escape if we ignore what we have in the new covenant if those who ignored the voice of Moses were not free from sin when they sinned? How shall we escape? Where do we want to spend eternity? We read from the book of Revelation. There's a contrast. God, he'll wipe away all tears. There'll be all joy and no more sorrow. Or there'll be a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth and burning and, and all the terrible things and falling and sulfur and the beast and the false prophet and the torment. And someone has said this, the best that humanity can comprehend what it's like. They said probably the worst of all will be the fact that there's no hope. No hope of ever changing. God is not willing that anyone should perish. He started way back before the foundation of the earth, before creation, and set a plan in place. And in love and compassion and patience and grace and mercy, he holds back the second coming day after day after day. He is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Are we giving him everything in return to all that he's given for us? Are we willing? You see, he and Jesus are still giving everything today for our salvation and waiting for the repentance of those who have not came to him. Here we have a song.